Postscript Media, podcast for a changing planet. We hear from so many listeners who want to know how to eat better for their bodies and for the planet. We've talked about meat versus plants, processed food versus whole food, milk versus almond milk, and we did a whole episode on the pros and cons of local food. But we haven't talked about the ultimate local food, the food you grow or raise or hunt or fish yourself, first-hand food. Ah, that sounds familiar, Mike, and I think I like what you're getting at here. (laughs) Well, Tamar, it just so happens that a few months ago, I read this smart and hilarious book about first-hand food. The author actually invented the phrase first-hand food. So I thought it would be cool for everyone to hear what she had to say about it. Ladies and gentlemen, our guest today is Tamar Haspel. Come on, Mike. Do you really think I would stoop to use our pod to promote my book, which is called To Boldly Grow, is wildly funny, contains the secret to successful improvement, and is available wherever books are sold? (laughs) Well, it's an amazing book. So true story, I don't know if our listeners know this, but we had never met, never spoken on the phone, But after I read To Boldly Grow, I cold-called you and suggested we should do a podcast together. You cold-DM'd me, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and then then we talked like 10 minutes later. I'm actually a little embarrassed that it's taken us this long to devote an entire episode to your book, which I should mention would make a truly excellent holiday gift for Climavore's listeners or their loved ones. Look, I am totally good with promotion. Um, But let's not forget that our show is about climate. And the book is about all the good things that happen when you grow or fish or raise or forage your own food. And climate really only plays a big part. Well, you you shouldn't feel bad, Tamar. Uh, My first book, The Swamp, which is no longer available wherever books are sold, although you can still find it online, but it was about the Everglades. and, And to my eternal embarrassment, it barely mentioned climate change, even though the Everglades might end up underwater because of climate change. Now, I actually read your book, and it's true, it's not a climate book, but it does have all kinds of climate stuff, right? Like, I remember the section about how foraging for mushrooms can be hell on your carbon footprint. It totally can. There is that. Right? You have a whole chapter on, uh, we talked about this a little bit on Thanksgiving episode, but the most climate-friendly meat, right? Yeah, that part, I think, is a surprise. And I think there's some other surprises when it comes down to plants and climate. And my last Washington Post column was about how leafy greens are not the best for the climate. And I have to say, I got a pretty supercilious email on that subject, Um, from a guy who wrote to me suggesting that my reporting needed context because he grows his own vegetables with very few inputs. He feeds his organic waste to his worm farm and is basically holier than thou, or at least holier than me in every way. His vegetables, his leafy greens are super climate friendly. And I have to say he had a point. So we definitely have something to talk about here. I don't understand you, Tamar. I mean, the whole point of having a podcast is is to make fun of people who send us obnoxious emails. It's not to acknowledge that they might have a point. Okay, then. We'll leave him aside, and let's just talk about the climate impact of food that you glean from the landscape around you. And if any of you grow your own food or fish it or hunt it or forage it, this show is for you. 
Look, I can barely grow my toenails, but I'm interested in the climate impact of firsthand food. And most of all, I want to promote this incredibly awesome and hilarious book. So I'm not worthy, and I'm Michael Grunwald. And I'm Tamar Haspel, and this is Climavores, a show about promoting your book, a show about eating on a changing planet. So tomorrow I'm going to embarrass you because I really am an evangelist for for to boldly grow. I think it's just uh, it's really amazing, and partly because it's not just about food. Um, it's a book about doing stuff, which I think is really cool as somebody who's mostly incapable of doing stuff. And it also turns out to be a book about love and marriage, um, almost a how-to book in in many ways about love and marriage. And when you think about it, like doing stuff and loving, that's kind of what life is. Like, you know, that's, that's pretty much it. Um, so it really is a, a wise book about how to live. Um, I would love you to tell our listeners a little bit about, you know, how you got the idea and how this project got started. Well, both the doing and the loving are sort of wrapped up in my husband, Kevin. And, you know, I was never much of a doer. I lived on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. I did a lot of things in my armchair. I was curious about the world, but I, you know, I've always been sort of a hesitant traveler and I didn't know how to build anything. And Kevin comes along and he is a doer, you know, down to his very core. And you know, you marry a doer at your peril because you never know exactly what he's going to want to do. And Kevin wanted to put a garden, a vegetable garden, on the roof of our Manhattan apartment building. And I'm like, well, do you think we could get permission from that for that? If everybody wanted to do it, there wouldn't be any room up there. And he's like, honey, people in this building don't even cook their own food. They're not going to grow <laughs> their own food. And so I got we got permission from the from the building management and we we slept a bunch of whiskey barrels up there and we planted some tomatoes and some some berries and some cucumbers and it was interesting and I watched them grow and anybody who's ever grown anything has this sense of wonder that this actually happens and then when when the the cherry tomatoes finally bore fruit and anyone who's ever grown a tomato and stood in the garden and eaten it, it still has that new tomato smell. <laughs> and, and, and you're ready to swear in a court of law that it's the best tomato that the, the planet has ever seen. And that was the inception of this project, this, this idea that, hey, food that you're invested in, food that you grow yourself, um, has a particular power. It tastes delicious, not necessarily because it is delicious, although there's some of that too, but it's because you're invested. So so I got this one-two punch of a husband and a doer. And then, you know, when we, we moved from New York, basically almost by accident, to Cape Cod, I started looking around and saying, okay, well, what can I do here that I couldn't do in Manhattan? And the answer was all kinds of things, and it started with gardening. Yeah, I mean the the idea that so many of us are passive about our food, right? It's just something that comes to us. Um, you know, <laughs> some some more ready-made than 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 it should, right? But uh but certainly that it's not something that we're involved in producing when 
you know, Americans all used to <laughs> produce it, produce our food. It's really, I think that's sort of what makes your book so powerful. Um, again, not just as a intellectual exercise, but as you said, an emotional one. Um, but but I, I want you to talk a little bit more about Kevin because uh, you're you're obviously you're very different types of people, but you have this amazing concept of non-overlapping magisteria, which then, of course, you know, after setting it apart out as a principle, you then violate repeatedly. <laughs> yeah, of um, but I, I want What's you a to, principle for? <laughs> I want you to tell people about it because it's just I think anybody who's in a relationship should hear about it. So Kevin and I are wildly different. And if there's 10 ways to solve a problem and you ask each of us for our top five, there will be no overlap. And there's a story I sort of I used to illustrate this because this is a matter of temperament, that I am always looking for the low labor makeshift way to solve the problem. And Kevin is always going to, he's going to solve the problem for all time. And I, I come by this honestly because my mother was exactly the same way. And when we were kids, this is the best illustration of this, of this mindset that I know. When we were kids, you know, we were kind of the neighborhood weirdos and we were the target of occasional neighborhood vandalism. And one day the mailbox, the mailbox got loose so you could pick it up. And somebody picked up the mailbox and left it in the backyard. And it, it, it annoying. And the way you solve this problem, obviously, and the way Kevin would have solved the problem if he had been there, is to, to pour a concrete foundation and put in a new mailbox and then come Armageddon, it'll be the last mailbox standing. My mother's solution to this was to put the mailbox out in the morning and then take it in with the mail. And to her credit, this actually worked pretty well unless you were late getting out there. And I think there was some kind of rule that the mailman had to put the mail in the mailbox. So you would go running out with the mailbox and like hold it out to the mailman. And then he put the mail in and bring it in. So anyway, that is where I come from temperamentally. And Kevin and I took our cue about non-overlapping magisteria from an essay by the late uh, paleontologist Stephen Jay Gould. And he wrote about reconciling science and religion. And the case he made was that we don't have to reconcile them because they deal with completely different areas of knowledge, non-overlapping magisteria. And so Kevin and I decided that every marriage needs non-overlapping magisteria. There are things that he does, hopefully without interference. There are things that I do without interference. But the problem, of course, as you alluded to, is that this requires one party or the other to butt out. <laughs> and look, butting out is not my long suit. Let's face it. <laughs> that is not your magisterium. No, I can, no, no, I can attest to this. <laughs> yes, you can. <laughs> but um, I think one of the things that's really cool about this narrative um, is, I mean, it's it's about the different things that you get into, uh, you know, and we'll talk about some of them, about gardening, about hunting, about fishing. Um, but it's also a story of you gathering skills, um, of you learning stuff, figuring out how to do things. Um, and and that, I think, is where it, the book really sort of transcends food. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, sort of when you started to realize that this was sort of just bigger than, you know, what percentage of our food are we making ourselves? When I started it, it, that totally was it. It was about food. Um, we're going to see like what 
kinds of food we can raise or forage or hunt and how much of our food we can provide in that way. And the answer, by the way, on a big year was about 30% of calories. But it started to be about skill acquisition. The secret to successful self-improvement is to try things you've never done before because that's the steep part of the learning curve. I can work and work and work on, you know, being a better writer, which I have for decades. I tried to do better. But, you know, that's, it's hard to get better once you've been doing it for 30 years. But if you've never done it before, it's easy to get better. And so we, we fish and we tow a boat. And, you know, because Kevin is better at so many things, he ended up doing those things a lot of the time under the competent spouse doctrine. And But it, but it, it doesn't work if he's good at everything because then I don't do anything. And so I decided I was going to be the person who backed up the, the boat on the boat ramp. And if you've ever backed up a trailer, it's like it has a mind of its own. It defies physics. It goes all over the place. But it's not that hard to get good at it. But if you're doing a boat on a ramp, you have to get good at it under pressure because not only are there other people waiting to use the boat ramp, but there are these people just standing around waiting for you to f*** up. We call them rampies. And if you doubt their existence, just go to the internet and look up incidences of people screwing up on boat ramps and you'll find people, the boat, they drop the boat on the ramp, the boat goes in the water, the truck goes in the water. And the only reason these videos exist is because people are there watching. And so when I first started backing up the truck, um, I only did it when nobody was around. I practiced a little at home. But then as you do, I got good at it. And okay, this this is the embarrassing part. Because here's this totally ordinary skill backing up a trailer. And I will tell you that not very much makes me feel as big and bad as getting into the cab of the F-250 in front of all these people who are assuming I'm going to fuck up, mostly because I'm a woman, and backing the boat down perfectly, quickly, skillfully, and then pulling that trailer into a tight parking space. And like, I don't care if the skill you don't have is hanging a picture. Lean in, hang a picture every day <laughs> because it, 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 it builds confidence and competence. And it was so fulfilling and it was, it was arguably more important than the food. It's, it's awesome since we are often in our day jobs, we're like journalistic rampies, you know, <laughs> we're, totally <laughs> we're like, we're like ah, that's totally wrong. <laughs> but, but no, and I think, I think another one of the lessons is it wasn't necessarily <laughs> this in my marriage, right? Um, where it wasn't necessarily that you were going to be better than Kevin at, at doing the, uh, at, at, driving the truck down the ramp. But it's like there was this sort of, uh, it was like a like Ricard and, and Ricardo economics, right? Where it's like, he's got enough things. And, and it's like, even though he was better, that this was something where you could at least do it competently. It turned out you could do it well. Like I have this problem because, you know, I'm, Christina's better than me at everything. Um, so I tended to say, you know, you know, well, okay, well, I guess she'll do it. And she, she's a doer. And she's like, well, I'll do it because I'm not going to let you drive worse than me or, you know, or, uh, but anyway, I think it, w- there's, there's a lesson that just because that you both got to participate and that, and in the larger scale, this is what I keep 
saying about your book. And there's a larger lesson about life that you, uh, you know, you can't just leave it to everybody else because you're not going to be perfect at it. I think it's, uh, I think it's really amazing. That's exactly right. And, you know, it, and it's funny because I have actually been complimented at the ramp where people say, wow, you're really good at that. And it's totally the soft bigotry of low expectations <laughs> because Kevin is still better at it than I am and no one's ever complimented him. Well, it's amazing. Um, I do think that since this is Climavores and even though it's a book about more than food, it's still a book about food. I think we should talk a little bit about food. I, that's our wheelhouse. The first first-hand activity that you talk about is gardening. And you started in the Upper West Side, and then you came to Cape Cod. And uh, I love that the first thing you did, it's so so journalist, um, is you kind of went to the USDA website and you tracked down basically the, what kind of soils you have in, uh, in your backyard. And it's like zero to six inches crappy soil, six to 17 inches, crappy soil, 17 to 31 inches, crappy soil. I remember you said, and then it said, ha ha. I mean, it didn't, but that's sort of what it felt like. I mean, gardening is something that probably a lot of listeners can relate to. Um, talk about the challenge of getting that going in a, in a new environment. It totally was. And, you know, the USDA has this amazing uh uh, database. It's the uh, it's the U.S. It actually it's the U.S. Geological Service that does it, and there's a uh, there's a map of basically the whole country, and you can zoom in on your own backyard and find out what kind of soil is there. And in and in our case, it was crappy soil, aka Carver coarse sand. And I will say that gardening, of all the ways to get food. Gardening is the thing I'm probably the worst at. And so in some ways, that means maybe I shouldn't be talking about it at all. But in some ways, I think maybe I should be the person talking about it because so many other people struggle with gardening. And even if you suck at it, which I do, you can still grow some amazing things. You just have to sort of learn to navigate whatever particular circumstance that you're in. And so, yeah, we have this crap soil. By the way, we also have a lot of shade. We have hilly terrain. We are just tailor-made for a bad gardening spot at our house. But eventually you figure out, okay, here's this one sunny spot. Here's where you can build a raised bed. Okay, we know that we can't grow root vegetables because we tried every single one, but we know that we can grow decent tomatoes and we can grow decent cucumbers and we can have a nice herb garden. And so Gardening is basically an exercise in playing to your strengths. And even if you suck at it, you still get that miracle sense that something is growing out of the ground. And it never gets old. I have tried a little gardening, and I suck way worse than you. It's like it's really embarrassing how bad I am. I mean, I, you know, I just can't make anything happen. So know, we should have a gardening podcast. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, exactly. You know, we've we've talked a little bit on the show about how you know there's there's a little bit of this kind of cult of agriculture where, and I don't want to, you know, obviously all farmers are different, but there definitely is this. You mentioned the word supercilious earlier. There's this idea that, like, we're farmers, we provide your food, we feed the world, um, we are the heartland, we are the salt of the earth, um, and, you know, we, we deserve all these subsidies. And obviously, I, I find it kind of annoying. But then when I, when I struggle to make actual food come out of the ground, you do realize that 
you know, farmers are doing something kind of amazing. And granted, some like modern farming is a, a little different than gardening. Um, it's maybe more like manufacturing. Um, but that's pretty impressive too. They are absolutely doing stuff. Um, and it, it has given me a little bit more appreciation in contrasting my absolute dysfunctional incompetence um, with the fact that people grow a lot of food <laughs> every year and they make it happen. You can't help but be sort of wowed by the sheer amount and also the skill that goes into this. And, you know, at I think farmers are kind of right to object to people who have, you know, can't grow anything other than their toenails, talking about, you know, how our ag system is broken, and and I totally get that. And actually, one of the great things about growing your own food is that it it does sort of you internalize this idea that food has to come from somewhere, and that it has impact when, you know, you you have weeds and you have to put pesticides um, to fight uh, insects and you have to amend your soil every year in order to grow anything like a decent garden. You know, these are the same problems farmers have just writ small. And, you know, please don't mistake your backyard garden for a production farm. There's tons of differences. But there is that connection. And I think that is a really good reason to do it. That's, I think that's a great point, Tamara. Like, I, I'd love to hear you talk more about that, right? Because we talk, well, we talk about on this show, when we talk about the climate impact of farming, essentially we're talking about land, like the uh, the land you use, could it be better? You know, could it? What what's the cost of using it to grow stuff instead of having it be forests and trees or wetlands? And then the resources, like what is the impact of the pesticides, the fertilizers, the you know the the cows, the everything that you're doing? That's essentially the climate impact that we talk about every week. And I see it's the same in your yard, right? It totally is. It totally is. And so, like, we're making exactly the same kinds of decisions. I mean, we live on two acres that are almost all wooded. And so, yeah, I could make sunnier spaces, but it would mean <laughs> cutting down trees. And we say all the time, deforestation is the thing that you don't want to do. And so I've become very attached to my trees, and we only cut them down if they're really threatening our house or getting in the way of things that we have to do that in a way that we don't have another answer to. But it's the reason we don't have the kind of solar array that you have on your house is because we would have to cut down a bazillion trees to do that. And it just, it seems like it's counterproductive. And so, yeah, when you are making decisions about what you can grow at your house, you're trying to minimize impact in all kinds of ways, in climate ways, but also in money ways. So I don't want to have to truck in yards and yards of soil in order to grow something because, first of all, there's the energy, there's the the, uh, the climate impact isn't even on my list, but there's the money, there's the logistics. Um, and so you you end up trying to do more with less, which is, of course, exactly what we're talking about our food system needing to be. Right. And you, you, there's a perfect example where, you know, in 
obviously we we did a whole episode about planting trees is great. You planted a fig tree, right? And, uh, and my poor uh, fig tree. And, and, and but again, it's like you can have a fig tree which will store carbon and also make food until it dies back to its roots in a cold winter, which is what sucks. Yeah, and until the insects eat all the food, right? <laughs> I like, know. But anyway, talk a little bit about the the various uh, climate impacts of some of the different kinds of gardening you did. So here are the things that I think are big wins. I think that. Uh, First of all, what where you led with is trees are a huge win because they're trees and they they store carbon in and of themselves. Um, and they can also, if they thrive, ask me how I know, give you a whole lot of fruit. But if they don't thrive, at least there's a little fruit there. And we, I should say, we put in a star fruit tree here in Miami. Or, and by we, of course, I mean the dude we paid to do it. But, oh, you know, okay. <laughs> like, we didn't actually do it ourselves. And you're right. When you eat the star fruit that grew in your own yard, it's like, that's awesome. Right, of course. And so, so planting fruit trees and nut trees is probably maybe the single best thing you can do um, with the least climate impact and actually maybe a positive climate impact because if your tree grows, that's that much more carbon that isn't in the atmosphere. Um, but there are other things as well. So one of the things that I think everybody should start with, both because it's pretty easy, it's small scale, um, and I think it has the real potential to reduce waste, is planting herbs. You know how they make you buy those big bunches when you only need a little bit? And they're often wet, which means they rot really quickly. And so even I, I'm anal about food waste. I really hate it. But even I sometimes end up with, you know, this soggy parsley at the bottom of the of the crisper that I have to give to the chickens. And so, um, so planting your own herbs is terrific. And, you know, planting lettuces is great because let's face it, lettuce is a waste of agricultural resources, but if you grow it at home from seed, then you can enjoy the fresh lettuces without it having to be transported across the country. Right. Close listeners will remember that uh, Tamar has described lettuce in a certain scatological terms. We, we won't go there again. But, <laughs> um, but so... And the other thing that we love for, uh, because we can do it and also because it uses basically a waste stream is shiitake mushrooms. So if you have a recently dead tree, um, or if you can, you know, get trees from landscapers who are taking them down for other reasons, uh, and you can inoculate them with shiitake mushrooms, you can have shiitake flushes for several years with just basically one afternoon's backbreaking labor. <laughs> well, from gardening, you then almost stumbled into livestock, right? You mentioned the uh, the chickens, and we actually did an episode where we talked about your chickens and pigs, where we when we did animal welfare. But talk about how you uh, how you got into this, and what what did you learn from livestock? So, like you know how when you go to the grocery store and you check out, and right at the checkout counter as you're waiting, there's like Snickers bars and People magazine. <laughs> And it's never like green beans and the economist because everybody knows what impulse purchases are. And so does the feed store. And so, you know, Kevin and I were in there getting chicken feed one day and they had these little cute turkey poults at the front of the store. And we're like, okay, look, they're six inches, they're six inches tall. How hard can it be? 
<laughs> and, and so as impulse purchases go, I got to say livestock are not really <laughs> where you ought to go. But it turned into this yet another exercise in, okay, we have to figure out how to house them, which was uh, quite the ongoing drama. Um, and we have to figure out, of course, how to slaughter them. And this was the first time that we had actually raised animals uh, that we killed. And it was, we were very committed to trying to do it right. And that's, you know, that's another skill. And this is the thing about skill acquisition. For me, this was really hard. I didn't want to kill an animal. I, you know, a, a lifetime of watching, you know, Wild Kingdom, I'm on Team Gazelle. But the harder it is to get yourself to do it, the more satisfying it is to have done it and to have done it well. And so raising livestock was a real important step in that way. And I knew where my Thanksgiving dinner had come from. And, you know, it's probably not a climate win because if you're raising animals, the way to do it in the most climate-friendly way is to do it in the most efficient way. But I have issues with those efficiencies in terms of animal welfare. So this was a win for me for other reasons. Right. And presumably, I mean, for, again, to get back into Dorkland, the main impact, the climate impact of raising livestock is going to be what they eat, right? And and so if you're feeding them just scraps from your garbage, I mean, that would presumably be good. But if you're buying chicken feed from the store that's being, you know, grown with fertilizers and pesticides. And, and it's in the 50-pound bag rather than the railroad car, so it had to be packaged. And, and then you forget something and you have to go back to the store in your F-250. And it's like, <laughs> it goes on and on and on. Yeah, so the, those F-250s can cause a real problem, right? I think it makes sense that sort of raising livestock and growing food would have some climate issues. Uh, we talked in the last episode about how the invention of agriculture created all kinds of, you know, early climate impacts, even by indigenous people. And you can understand that when they started burning forests and clearing forests, like, we get it. But... When we were just gatherers, you would think that would be perfect. And I'm sure it was. But as you said, like you thought foraging mushrooms would be like a perfect climate win, except there's an F-250 involved, right? It's totally, yeah. <laughs> this is the problem. So I, you know, in general, foraging, as long as you don't take enough that it affects the ecosystem in any meaningful way, is a great climate-friendly way to feed yourself. However... Anyone who's ever found a good mushroom will feel me on this because as soon as you find out where the black trumpets are or where the hen of the wood is or where the morels come up, after every rain, you drive there to see if the mushrooms have come up yet. And so we there was a tree in, in downtown, I use the term loosely, Hyannis on Cape Cod, where I live, um, that it was right off a parking lot and we're driving by at like 40 miles an hour. And Kevin has bionic peripheral vision. I think it was, it was developed from his One of years. his magisteria. One of, this is totally his magisterium that, um, 
that uh, he was a commodity trader on the floor in New York. And to be a commodity trader, you stand in this big pit and, you know, you've all seen probably trading places where they have the scenes like that. And Kevin was actually an extra in that movie. And, and you have to be aware of everything going on around you. And I think Kevin honed his peripheral vision that way. And we'll be driving down a road at 40 miles an hour arguing about politics. And he'll be like, did you see that? Like, no, of course I didn't see that. I was arguing with you about politics. And then so we have to circle back and, and there's this big mushroom there right at the base of this tree. And so then, of course, from then on, you know, every time we're within five miles of the place, we have to drive by <laughs> to see if the mushroom's <laughs> back. And so, but in general, foraging is a climate win. And also, it you learn stuff. Um, and uh, mushrooms, I know people are reluctant to do mushrooms, and I get why, because, like, the upside is a tasty soup and the downside is an excruciating death. But it's really not hard to identify a few that you can eat. So I encourage everybody to try mushroom foraging. Uh, speaking of excruciating deaths, uh, you also did some hunting. <laughs> and <laughs> so, so before we discuss your, uh, your bambicide, um, I, I, I do want— one of my favorite stories in the book is is you and Kevin in the deer blind. You you got it. It's like it's it's so funny. It cracks me up that this is your favorite story. <laughs> so, so yeah. So anybody who's ever hunted deer knows that mostly it sits around. It it involves sitting around. You know, being cold, not moving, waiting for deer to show up. And so here we were, um, we were over at, there's a, there's a, a military reserve that opens it up for a hunt every fall. And we're sitting there in a deer blind and you're trying not to move. And, you know, I tried listening to like an audio book in one ear, but then I knew I wouldn't like hear a deer unless it like gored me in the, in the gut. And so we're sitting here doing nothing. And I do not, doing nothing is just not a thing that I'm good at. And I'm cycling through, I'm thinking about all kinds of things. Okay, what's for dinner? Um, am I going to have to clean the bathtub? Are we going to get the taxes in on time? You know, I'm working on my all-purpose acceptance speech, you know, Nobel, Oscar, whatever. And I have to say it's getting pretty good. And then, you know, I, oh, if we get a deer, how am I going to cook it? Venison rest. So I've got all these things going on in my head. And, you know, Kevin's sitting there. I'm like, I wonder what he's thinking about. And so we're literally sitting there for two hours. And after we gave up on the deer, sun was setting, and we pack up our stuff. And Kevin goes, so were you thinking about sex that whole time too? <laughs> and I'm like, the whole time? And he's like, well, I thought about that boat for a few minutes because we had looked at a boat. <laughs> And uh, Kevin's the best. <laughs> it reminds me of the the old New Yorker cartoon. I don't know if you remember this one. There was like two pie charts, one of men's brains and one of women's brains. And like men's brains, like the big the biggest pie was piece of the pie was sex and then there was a little piece for love and then there was a good sized chunk for what's in the refrigerator. And and women, there was this big piece for love and this little piece for sex and then a big chunk for having to pee. <laughs> <laughs> That was well, there a classic. You there you go. Uh, so I think we did mention in uh, another Thanksgiving episode that uh, venison is 
Like if you're going to go meet, that it's as climate friendly as you can get? It absolutely is. And you're taking a wild, overpopulated ruminant that is in many places doing ecological damage out of the system. So as long as you don't drive your F-250 too far to get there, it's a total win. So we haven't even talked about your oyster farming, which is an amazing environmental win. Um, You also do a lot of fishing, um, which you're... Diesel, notwithstanding, is uh, is a nice way of plucking food out of, out of the ocean. Um, but let's talk a little bit about the sort of big picture. Um, you know, it sounds like a little bit of a mixed bag, but is is firsthand food a good thing for the climate? So it's like you said, um, it's a mixed bag, and some is better for the climate, some isn't better for the climate. It depends on what you live, where you live, what the food is, how close the fish are to shore, how good your gardening skills are. But in a larger way, I think it it connects you to food and you start thinking about it differently. You think about it more mindfully. You think about it less wastefully. There, there is an intellectual journey in this book that you've written. Um, and like we talk all the time about land, and when it's your land, I think you think about it differently. And and when it's your food that you're pulling out of your land, um, <laughs> it really makes you think about this idea. It's like that was a lawn, and now you know it's providing a tomato that no longer needs to be grown somewhere else that would also re- require land um, and ultimately require deforestation. And I think it makes us think about the trade-offs we make when, you know, when we use land. Oh, that was a lawn. It could ultimately be more nature. We could let it turn back and store more carbon, or we could use it to grow food, and that would help solve a problem. Um, It's a way we talk about how the entire middle of the country, a lot of it used to be forests and wetlands that stored a lot of carbon, and now we've decided to use it in a different way to make our food, which is great, but it's making it so that we don't have to make it somewhere else. And there are all these trade-offs that I think that we kind of know intellectually, but that you feel it more in your bones when you're doing it yourself. Like we t- said at the beginning, this is the ultimate eating local, but it's not the same. We, we kind of made fun a little bit of eating local. <laughs> Who's in our, we? In one of those early, <laughs> yeah, well, especially me. <laughs> but we both talked about some of the downsides that, you know, people feel virtuous about it. They go to the farmer's market. They're in a community. Granted, it was just me who said it's like, you know, it's like going to a NASCAR race where you're around your own people. But I think I think a lot of it is this this feeling of being virtuous while gardening, making your own food. It's the doing virtue. It actually is is being virtuous and and sort of contributing to this massive food supply where we're always talking about we're going to need X trillion calories. Well, you're providing some of that yourself, and that's that much less that needs to be provided through all these things that we talk about the downsides all the time. Right. And, and by doing it yourself, um, something happens. And like, you know me, I, I'm a hard-ass empiricist. I'm all about like trying to figure out the greenhouse gas emissions of all this stuff. But food is emotional and and gleaning food from the landscape around you with your own two hands, getting sturdy in service of dinner, um, recalibrates your most 
basic sense of what food is on a visceral level. And I think, you know, we have grown up in an environment where we think of food as, you know, the things in the boxes and the bags with the bright colors and the exciting punctuation. And that's what's in the supermarket. And you sort of internalize the idea that that's what food is. But when you spend time with it, um, I think it it the pendulum starts to move back toward a sense that food is the plants and animals that have been the foods that humans have thrived on since the beginning of humanity, basically. And I think that's something that we've lost in our modern era, and it's and recapturing it is important. And it's important because I think it has the power to change the things you eat. But I think it also has the power to change the person you are. And I, I, you know, I think we all want to eat better. We all want to be better. And by trying your hand at something food-related that you haven't tried before, you kind of get to tackle both things at once. So it's, it's about skill acquisition and it's about dinner. It's about a more nutritious diet and it's about a more competent human being. And, you know, let's not forget that food is delicious and there's joy in, in eating and feeding people that you love and in, and in tasting new things. And we lose that a lot in our wonky dork fest uh, conversations about climate. And I think, you know, Getting Dirty reconnects you to a lot of things, including that joy. Well, one thing that really comes through throughout this book, and I really hope everybody is clicking right now and buying To Boldly Grow. (laughs) Mike, you should go on QVC. (laughs) (laughs) Even if you don't care, like if you're listening to this podcast, you care about food and and this stuff, but uh, even if you don't, it's such a wonderful book about life and about love and about fun. One thing that comes through on every page is that this journey where you went from passive receptacle for food to somebody involved in creating your food is that you loved it. It was fun. (laughs) And reading the book is fun. So I hope everybody will go and get to boldly grow and uh, never going to get a guest pimping their book as good as this one tomorrow. Thanks, Mike. I do appreciate it. Climavores is a production of Postscript Media, and we want to hear from you. We want to know what you're thinking. We want to know what you're wondering about. Uh, Give us a call. We're at 508-377-3449 or drop us an email at climavores at postscriptaudio.com. And if you have any gardening disasters, we want them. The show is hosted by me, Tamar Haspel. And me, Michael Grunwald. Executive producers are Scott Clavenna and Stephen Lacey. Senior editor is Ann Bailey. Cecily Mesa Martinez is the managing producer, and Dalvin Abouaje is the associate producer. Engineering by Sean Marquand and Greg Vilfram. Postscript Media is supported by Prelude Ventures, a venture capital firm focused on climate solutions across energy, food, agriculture, transportation, logistics, and advanced materials. And we hope that after you 
buy Tamara's book and give it a five-star rating on Amazon. You can then help us spread the word by giving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or rate us on Spotify. We are also streaming on Amazon Music. And please, if you know somebody else who would like hearing us talk, after, of course, you tell them about tomorrow's book, give them a link to Climb of Wars. And we'll be back next week shilling a book that isn't written by one of its co-hosts. <laughs>